Why, hello, it is Adam. Welcome back to Bringing It Backwards, a podcast where both legendary and rising artists tell their own personal stories of how they achieve stardom. On this episode, we had the opportunity to hang out with Ron Pope over Zoom video. Ron was born in New York and lived there till about 11 years old, then moved to Georgia. And he tells us about how he got into music. He was in chorus and choir as a kid. He also liked to write poetry. And then around 12 years old is when he started to learn how to play guitar. Ron talked about some bands he was in early on. He ended up going to college for baseball and played baseball for a couple years. And when he was unable to play, Ron transferred to NYU and started to move that focus from baseball on to music and songwriting. He talked about some early success he had online, especially on MySpace, being one of the number one independent artists on the platform. He told us about his experience on a major label, working with a major label, the major success of his song called A Drop in the Ocean, and all about his new album, which was created kind of in the wake of some back-to-back tragedies that Ron and his family was facing. So Ron tells us a lot about this new album, which is called Inside Voices. You can watch the interview with Ron on our Facebook page and YouTube channel at Bringing It Backwards. It'd be amazing if you subscribe to our channel, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Bringing Back Pod. And if you're listening to this on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, it'd be incredible if you follow us there as well and hook us up with a five-star review. We'd appreciate your support if you follow and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're bringing it backwards with Ron Pope. Again, I'm Adam, and uh, this is about you and your journey in music and how you got to where you are now. And we'll talk about the the, the album coming out here in a couple weeks or a week and a half or so. Yeah. Sweet. Um, first off, uh, where were you born and raised? I was born in Newark, New Jersey, and okay. I lived there until I was 11 years old. And then I finished growing up in Georgia. So oh, wow. a little so, bit of both of those. Yeah. Nork to then move to 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 Georgia. What was it like? I mean, early on living in New York, what was that like? Um, so Nork is a in the the the, the county that I lived in, the suburbs of New York City. Um, you know, like maybe fifteen miles from the city. Um, and so it was pretty pretty striking to move to the south, um, yeah. having lived up there, and uh definitely uh an interesting you know kind of change uh change of pace uh i wore a puffy rangers starter jacket uh every every day uh nice. when i first moved <laughs> down there <laughs> and eventually uh, a teacher decided uh that it was um it made her warm that i was wearing uh, i was wearing a winter coat all year and so yeah, so I I did that uh, for a long time. It was it was an adjustment for sure. Uh, Definitely. Used... Sorry. Okay. Oh, it's all good. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that. I was just based off of who knows if the internet's right. We're about the same age, and I remember starter jackets and like starter was such a big company back in like the nineties. Yep, it was a it was a big deal that puffy coat. Um, my yeah. wife, my wife and I, we met. We met when we were in the seventh grade. So like her first memories of me are uh, me in this puffy jacket. Uh, no is- way. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah That's we, I mean, so we didn't amazing. start, we didn't start to date until we were adults, but we, we met as little kids. And so, but yeah. Still, like, That's cool. That's yeah, really, her, really cool. Her, her first picture of me is uh, me in this red, white, and blue New York Rangers puffy <laughs> starter jacket. So how funny. Um, what took you to, to uh, Georgia? Was that your family, your parents job or something was that would move you down there yeah my mom and my stepdad were going to school so we moved for them to go to school oh nice okay and what about music how did you get into music well um i guess i've kind of always made music uh you know i sang a lot as a kid and i was always like in the choir and in chorus at school and and then and i I always wrote poems and things like that and then one of my friends got an acoustic guitar when we were like 12 or so 12 or 13 and we would occasionally write a song but it wasn't like a thing we did all the time and then I just kind of kept writing and uh as I got older we started a band Uh, but it was just kind of one of the things I did you know like you know you do all kinds of stuff when you're a kid and um 
So growing up, it certainly wasn't like the, you know, organizing centerpiece of my life or anything. It was just one of the things that I did. And then I went to college to play baseball. And then uh, after I was done doing that, I needed, you know, kind of an organizing principle, something at the center of my life. And so I, um, uh, I really kind of took all the energy that I was putting into sports and I put it into music. And so that's, I think that's kind of the start of the whole thing. I went to NYU after that and, and um, joined a songwriting circle and I met a oh, bunch wow. of great writers and they really influenced me and, you know, kind of gave me the motivation, you know, and the, the notion that I could be a, a songwriter. Like I had never really considered it before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds like if you went to college for baseball, that must've been pretty dominating in your life. I mean, even through high school, I'd imagine, right. I mean, if you're yeah. playing at that level, um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, you know, takes, it takes all of your energy. And I, I mean, I think kind of, if you want to be very good at anything, it's sort of, uh, it sort of takes that, you know, what if you're, you know, unless you are incredibly lucky, because whatever you do, if it's something that you're trying to be, you know, exceptional at, there's other, like, if you're especially gifted to begin with, let's say, you know, as long, as you move along, eventually you're going to find people who are as good or, or better than you naturally. So then it's just about, you know, who's more willing to, to keep digging the hole. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think sports that were kind of a good lesson for, for business, honestly, it's like, you know, really, uh, obviously like, a you know, I'm a musician, but I, you know, I own a record label and, and I would say like being a, an independent, like a truly independent artist that really, um, play, you know, that, that kind of work ethic and nonstop hustle, was definitely a distinguishing factor uh, between me and other people that I, I came up with. Certainly, like uh, in college, I wasn't the best songwriter. I wasn't the best singer. I wasn't like the best guitar player or the coolest or the best looking or the best performer. There was no superlative that you would have given me ahead of you know people that were around me. Um, but I was just uh, willing to keep going when everybody else would stop. You know, over time, that kind of was the the thing that brought me forward is that when my, when the people who were better than me who were like, Oh man, I need health insurance or I need to make, you know, know that I'm going to be able to pay my rent next month. Uh, I was willing to not have health insurance, not be able to make my rent. And it's, I mean, it's an absurd proposition, obviously as an, as an artist, if you're not born with money, which I was certainly not mm-hmm. uh, that you have to kind of make those choices. But, um, you know, that that's what was presented to me. You know, it's either either uh, you know, keep going and, and out outlast everyone else or or starve or drown or whatever. Yeah. And so I just kinda I just kinda kept at it. And so yeah, that's definitely something that held over from sports because I was never the best at anything. Um, I just kind of like showed up first and was there last and, you know, always did the most. And so that allowed me to keep going much farther than many people who were considerably more gifted than I was. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I've interviewed a, over, you know, almost 4, 4, 1,400 artists doing this and I was in radio and everything before that. It's like a lot of people, because at the end, I'm going to ask you if you have any advice, but um, it's a lot of people say, you know, you just keep going, right? You just, if you just continue to move forward, uh, you know, hopefully something will end up landing and all, all the people that were kind of on your level will start know kind of tapering off as these things arise like money or health insurance all these things it's like uh not it sounds like you didn't really have like a plan b when you got to that level no no i did not and you know it's it's funny because i would say that now i i always recommend to people who are starting like learn to do something else um so that like if you get hungry, you can do something else <laughs> and uh but i didn't learn to do anything else you know i went to college and majored in anthropology, um, which is, if you're not familiar with it, it's the study of how to make coffee when you graduate. Um, it's it's <laughs> like a bar- barista studies, mostly. You meet a lot of people uh, working at the coffee shops and flower shops of America who okay. uh, majored in anthropology. Uh, but I mean, you know, it's something that you need a, you need a doctorate degree to, to even try to make a living with. And uh, mm. so I didn't learn anything in school, um, you know, except for how to make music. I mean, the, the trade that I learned was this. And, uh, you know, there were definitely a few years there where I wish I wished I knew how to do something else because it was pretty, uh, pretty grim for a while. But 
you know, but it all worked out. <laughs> yes. So, so far, we're still here. I haven't had to get a truck driver's <laughs> license yet. Sure, sure. Um, were you when you went to NYU? You, it sounds like you didn't start at NYU playing baseball. But when you went yeah. there, did you go to to do songwriting, or had had you finished your anthropology degree at the other college and moved over? No, so or? no. So I went. I went to Rutgers for two years to play baseball. Okay. And then I left Rutgers when I was done playing baseball to go to NYU. And, uh, but no, I didn't major in, in songwriting. I, I don't really know a lot of people who are like good songwriters, like good, like real professional songwriters that like, that did that. Um, uh-huh. Because I, like, it's hard, it would be hard to teach. I mean, I think it still is. I think they're, they're you know, they're trying to crack that code at a lot of, you know, universities that have songwriting majors. It's like, mm-hmm. Because it, it's largely about independent study in the end. You know, no one can, no one's going to craft your voice for you. I think people can give you tips and you can learn about song form and music theory and all, all stuff that I certainly did learn about in school. Um, but no, I didn't, I didn't major in songwriting or, or music. I took music theory and harmony and counterpoint and, you know, uh, vocal lessons and guitar lessons and piano lessons. And, you know, I, I definitely learned about music, but I don't, um, I definitely don't recommend to anyone that they go to college and major in songwriting. It's, uh, you know, that's yeah. a, that's a, that's a tough one to teach at the, in the university. For sure. Yeah. It's not like a doctor or something where they're like, okay, this is what you need to do. And then you go perform and it's like, they can't write a code for, this is how you write the perfect song. And when you, you leave here, you're going to have six hits and be successful. <laughs> well, it's also like, you think about like, the idea that like, so you can learn about song form, right? And mm-hmm. you're like, okay, like the most traditional song form is maybe like A, B, A, B, C, you know, something like that, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, something mm-hmm. like that, like, you know, that kind of a thing, like maybe. And so right. you can teach kids every kind of like a conventional song form, but sometimes people write a song that's, 55 seconds long and it's basically just one long chorus and that becomes a hit like you don't know like you can't it's like you can't predict also like what trends are going to be in uh, production like as a for instance there are years where everything is programming piano songs and then there's right now they are not Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like (laughs) if you learn to write piano ballads uh and that's all you learn to do uh, and you make that your central focus, then the years that no one is cutting piano ballads, what are you going to do then? Uh, right. So it's, I think it's like about a broad understanding of, of music and, uh, you know, the writing, writing pop songs and writing, you know, I mean, I use pop as a very broad term, but, you know, writing right. like songs that are for people to consume. It's like, it's, yeah, it's hard to teach that to kids in school. I mean, and I like, I say the same thing when I go to like universities to guest lecture. I'm like, I don't know what they're going to teach you about songwriting here. Like you, you, know, you, you better be, because the most important thing, if you want to be a songwriter is like, you have to learn a ton of songs. Like that's definitely, um, you know, like uh, we were talking about this the other, the other day, like um, the, the different chord progressions that we use in places where like, I wonder where it was the first place that I ever played whatever like mm-hmm. two one five or something which is like not the most common thing in popular music but i kind of do it a, a good amount in in pre-choruses we we were like noted noticing this and it's like where did i learn that like where did that come from it's like i must have played it somewhere before i started doing it all the time right and so that but that's like i learned you know i i can't even imagine i can't fathom how many songs and i'm still learning songs all the time because mm-hmm. i'm curious it's like um my my brother is um it has a very mechanical mind he is he works in film and he works as a cameraman he's in that union and he's in the union of uh, film electricians so he's like a very mechanical thinker and when he was a kid my brother would take apart stuff like he took apart the vcr when i was a kid and then he put it back <laughs> together and that's how he learned how it worked he took the part he took apart the toaster and then he put it back together and then he understood how it worked and i think that songs are are kind of like that it's like you know you dissect other people's songs and you learn. And that's a big, that's a big thing. And so definitely like when I went to NYU, I joined a songwriting circle. And in that songwriting circle, we workshopped songs all the time. Someone would come with a new song and we learned the language of music 
criticism, like how to give constructive criticism and how to accept constructive criticism. And that was perhaps the most valuable thing that mm. I learned about music, like probably throughout my life, uh, is how to uh, share my ideas with others and then accept uh, notes. <laughs> like, yeah. because then, you know, then you're, you're working with the brain power of multiple people. It's like you can create a, a brain trust. You're not just using your own energies. Other people uh, can, ha you know, share their ideas with you, um, whether it's, you know, someone else who's co-writing a song with you or just a friend who's giving notes as you, as you write. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah, probably the most, that was the most valuable part of my education. Yeah, I was gonna say, there's something about being vulnerable, like, uh, and not being, and not having someone say, "Oh, you, you should do it this way," and then taking it all way too personally and being like, "Oh no, this is that's it's this way," and then you never know what would have happened if you would have taken the well, you know, I, suggestion. I think, think removing like the like the art, the art is something that I make, and while mm -hmm. it comes from inside of me, it is not me. It is not a part of me, and so if someone is, uh finding fault in some part of it, they are not uh, finding fault in me. It's not like I am deficient in some way because the bridge of this song has a chord that they find off-putting, like, or they think that one of the lyrics is like the, the, the rhyme could be more refined or something. You know, that's not, I think in the beginning, you're like, this is my art and it's who I am and it's everything. And it's like, well, you know, the art is an expression of stuff that's inside of you. Sure, sure, sure. But mm -hmm. I, you, if you're going to make art, like if you're a career artist, you're going to make music your whole life. I, I think you have to learn to take your, your, like your self-worth out of there. Because in addition to the fact that, you know, people are going to have notes and ideas, you know, the people that you collaborate with are going to have those. You're also going to be uh, like criticism is a part of, of the business. Like um, you're going to have people whose jobs it is to, to write, critique of the things you create and you can't put your self-worth in there uh, otherwise it'll eat you alive mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense for sure with uh you said the people that were in you're your going to school with at nyu were you know a support system and kind of help uh, validate what you are doing as a songwriter like was there a moment like or what kind of continued at that like once you had finished school were you playing around new york and was there like a, a moment that kind of boosted you to the next level or was it just kind of a gradual thing? Yeah. Mine, mine isn't like, uh, and then this happened and then it, you know, everything changed. I didn't have one of those kind of moments. It just kind of was like a long, long series of, of, you know, hard work and slowly growing an audience. Um, uh, I had always been playing out like in college, my band got very popular in New York. So that was, uh, being in a popular band in New York feels a lot like being famous um, mm -hmm. because it's like, you know, a, a giant city and people know you on the street and you, you know, you feel like that's pretty, uh, you know, a pretty profound experience as a, you know, a kid who no one had been paying attention to a few months before. Um, so that happened. And then that kind of tapered off. And uh, I, but I, I, you know, I was on the road a lot after college and then in uh, with, I guess, two years after I graduated from college. Um, and I, you know, I had been playing out in New York, I had been touring a bunch. And then I kind of, uh, I was in sort of the first class of people who broke on the internet, which is oh, okay. uh, kind of dating me a little bit, but, uh, you know, before <laughs> okay, we're the like, same age ish <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, before social media had a name, I got really, really popular on the internet. And, um, and so that was a really, you know, an interesting thing because I had been fostering this online community um, at a time when people weren't really doing that. And certainly not like at the majors, you know, like the, 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 the big players in the industry were not leaning into the Internet yet. Mm -hmm. And so I had like one of the first really big viral hits on the Internet um, and that just kind of launched the whole thing. And then, you know, I hadn't been a solo artist. Like I said, I was in a band, but I had this little, you know, solo, you know, little nominally I had a solo project, but it was just a few recordings I'd put out and, you know, some people I was talking to online, but then it just kind of grew and snowballed. And so within a few years of graduating, I was all in on the solo project. And I was like, at that point, the, the most popular unsigned artist in the world. 
So yeah, it was, um, it was a pretty, a pretty big swing from nobody was listening to my music. And I was like, you know, driving around with my friends in a van playing for like three people in Richmond and then driving, (laughs) you know, playing for four people in Virginia beach and eight people in Savannah and 13 people in, you know, mobile and so on and so on. Um, so I had been out doing that and then it just kind of like went bananas like uh and that's really that's really where like you know my actual career began i guess okay and what what platform was that on was like a myspace thing that was myspace yeah and then and then i had a friend my friend jake was one of the first interns at tunecore which is a a distributor you know independent distributor and he was Mm -hmm. like oh we can put your music on itunes if you want and i was like oh yeah we we were like immediately once it started working online and people started, you know, caring about it, we were like, Oh wow. How do we turn this into uh, a job? Like, it's mm-hmm. cool that all these people are listening, but like I'm making, you know, I'm paying $400 a month to like live with a bunch of roommates in Harlem. And like, I need a, I need to pay that rent. You know, I was right, like, teaching, right. teaching guitar lessons, I think at that point. Um, so Jake said, let's put your music on iTunes. And so I was like, okay, sure. Like, you know, I paid, you know, whatever, I don't know, like $25 or something. <laughs> and we, you know, started putting my music on iTunes. And then it was like, I started selling digital tracks, like millions of them. And, oh, wow. then, and then, you know, a few years later, streaming came along and I started to get, you know, billions of streams. Uh, so it's, um, uh, it's been a fascinating thing. Like I, and some of this stuff has just been like, I was exactly the right age. I was in exactly the right room. Like I met one of the people who started Pandora, like at a conference and we just sat down and we had some beers and it, like, I had never heard of it before. It was like brand new. And he was like, Oh, and we were, we were parting ways. He was like, Oh, give me a, give me your CD. I'll put your music, <laughs> my, my thing that I made, you know? So I was one of the first indie artists on there. And then I was like the first, American independent artists to break in a meaningful way on Spotify in Europe. So I went from like, you know, exploratory touring over there to like headlining festivals, like being on the same stages as like, you know, Lana Del Rey and Imagine Dragons and, you know, like playing for 50,000 people and stuff. So it definitely, um, the, you know, just, ha- you know, being at the, the um, there at the emergence of, social media you know and uh you know the both the sale of digital tracks on the internet and then streaming has um really fostered my ability to to do all of this and it's like really brought you know now obviously it's like i tour all over the world and all of that stuff and i have been for a very long time and that really all came out of us learning to navigate uh you know how do we turn a digital fan base into uh like actual human beings in the world Mm-hmm. And not a lot of artists can do that, make that transition, especially now with streaming and Spotify. Like you might get X million plays on a song and then try to play somewhere in the country and maybe no one will show up. They'll just know you as the you have that one hit on TikTok or whatever. Like, yeah, to, I mean, to be able to translate that into ticket sales. That's huge. That's really a fascinating thing that we watch right now. I mean, you see people get, you know, million TikTok followers and millions of monthly listeners on Spotify. And they can't, you know, rub together, you know, two tickets in most cities in the world. Right. And because, uh, I, I mean, I think it's sort of like when you win one of the singing TV shows, it's like there a lot of the people that are consuming that are television fans. They're people who like the television show. And so while they might even vote for you to win, it's hard to convert those people into actual consumers of, of your music um, because they were there to watch you on a TV show. They're not necessarily you know, ready to come into the world with you and go see you, you know, when you're on your, you know, your tour to play whatever clubs or theaters or whatever you're going to do. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it's not easy for anyone, I think, to navigate. It's like, if you're on a, I don't know, like if you're an actor and you're on a TV show, you might have millions of Instagram followers and TikTok followers. And, you know, people, you know, you have a beloved and devoted audience, but to, you might not be able to get, you know, 10,000 people to listen to your new song because, you know, they care about you from being on that TV show or they care about you from the movie you were in or whatever. And right. so it's, you know, I think it's, it's a thing that everybody has to navigate as they're trying to figure out like, how do I build an audience? And then what does that audience mean? And how do I, how do I turn this into a, a living? Hello, fresh. 
Bringing it backwards, listeners know how much my family and I absolutely love HelloFresh. We love the pre-portioned ingredients, the seasonal recipes. They have such good food. And of course, the fact that they deliver it right to my doorstep. Skip the grocery store. HelloFresh makes home cooking so easy. With HelloFresh, we have more free time, which is essential during the summer with the kids home from school and camps and uh, all the vacations, everything going on. People coming to visit, just planning the meal, trying to figure out what we're going to have for dinner is (laughs) just one less thing I have to worry about with HelloFresh. They take care of the meal planning, no trips to the grocery store. They deliver the ingredients. Everything I need arrives right to my doorstep. It's the peak of summer, which also means peak time for summer produce. And HelloFresh makes sure you get all of the best picks all season long. Their ingredients travel from the farm to your doorstep in less than seven days. The other night I made the Arthur Avenue pork sausage and pepper heroes had melty mozzarella and garlic potato wedges. It was so good. Italian pork sausage, mixed in some tomato paste, Italian seasoning, cut up some onions, some long green peppers, a little garlic butter on the baguette with a side of those garlic potato wedges. My family absolutely loved it. So easy. All the ingredients right there for me. No wasted food. Step-by-step instructions. I had the entire meal cooked in 30 minutes. It would have took me 30 minutes or more just to try to figure out what I was going to make for dinner that night. Again, we love HelloFresh. And right now, bringing it backwards, listeners, will get 50% off plus free shipping. You go to HelloFresh.com slash backwards50 and use the code backwards50 for 50% off plus free shipping. HelloFresh.com slash backwards50 and use the code backwards50 for 50% off plus free shipping. HelloFresh.com slash backwards 50, 50% off plus free shipping with the code backwards 50. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. You're an independent artist now. You own the, the label that you're on, right? Um, mm-hmm. And to be fair, my but, wife runs it. So I I mean, I only, I only nominally uh, participate in running okay. of this label. Like, <laughs> like, occasionally I go there and I give people a bunch of thumbs up and, you know, maybe I move around some boxes or something. I'm like, well, I'm here, you know. Uh, <laughs> That's but, amazing that she, yeah, that she does that. That's so cool. Yeah, um, we, with, she, she became my, my manager. My wife worked in, uh, at television advertising. Um, mm. She worked for a big TV network. And then she was at the beginnings of uh, selling uh, digital advertising, like on, on the internet. She was doing that um, many moons ago. And she was kind of like helping with my management. And then it got to the point where I was on the road all the time and she basically had two full-time jobs because my career had gotten involved enough. There was always stuff for her to do. And so that was about 11 years ago that she transitioned out of her, her gig to manage me. And then she started taking on other management clients and it just kind of, uh, it just grew from there. So now she does a bunch of stuff. She has uh, me and two other management clients. And then we have a, you know, conventional label where we have a few artists signed and then she does these marketing partnerships where artists come to her and she does uh, her and our team at the label. They do releases for people that, um, you know, like you hire the us for a yeah. given amount of time rather than like a record deal where the label owns your recordings. And so, wow. uh, yeah, it's cool. I mean, and she's um, she's a force of nature and, uh, you know, it is a powerful, a powerful woman in an industry that is like largely dominated by men. And mm-hmm. so. Uh, and now actually the whole team at the label is women. It's all, it's her and, and women. Oh, that's and, amazing. Yeah, it's cool. Um, I mean, and I, I don't know, that's not like, um, it wasn't necessarily like an on purpose thing. It's just like, you know, we kept hiring the most qualified people and the most qualified people happen to be women a bunch of times <laughs> in a row. So, yeah. and so, um, yeah, so that's what she does. That's cool. So, but um, when you're the, you know, you have these numbers on even MySpace back then at being the most popular independent artist on the, platform did that were you getting the bigger players like the bigger major labels at that time coming towards oh, yeah. you being like oh hey oh, like yeah. what you got um, going on here every everybody like all the majors tried to sign me and i eventually did spend one year signed to a major um and i always say for me having that deal was like being in middle school 
because I knew what I needed to do, but I always had to ask someone for money or permission. Oh, and, uh, I, it really, as an adult, it really didn't, it really didn't jive for me. And they just didn't add like a single dollar worth of value. And, and it did do one thing that it did definitely is it, it allowed me to shape my ideas about how I was going to do business. And so I only work with people who I feel like I can add value to because like I went somewhere and, you know, people, uh, you know, basically they kind of, I mean, I don't want to say, I don't want to say it in a way that's wrong. It's like they, they didn't add any value and they gained a great deal. I feel like that's mm. uh, that's a, the most diplomatic way that I can, I can say that it's, you know, they, they didn't add anything and they, and they were able to take a great deal from me. And, and I'm lucky, like, because I had a reversion of master's clause. So I was able to get my recordings back in the end. And, oh, that's huge. Uh, you know, and I had a limited amount of time that I had to be there. I was able to extricate myself when I realized that it was a bad situation. Like a lot of people, you know, these, these, um, these companies, they, they own their lives. They own all the recordings that they've made forever and, uh, you know, never pay them a dime after in advance. And, uh, so I'm very lucky. Uh, and you know, we, I would have loved to find a meaningful partner that would have helped us grow the project. I mean, I love the music. I've invested my whole life into it. Of course, mm-hmm. you know, what, what you want is for, uh, partners to come along that mean, that mean business and that care as much as you do. And I have, you know, I have been very lucky though, that like we figured out a way I always say like, now we're, we're indie with infrastructure. You know, we, you know, in-house, we have a publicist, we have a creative director who shapes the visuals. We have an assistant. There's always like a bunch of people around helping. So it's not just, I'm not like, you know, I'm not doing this myself. And that's, um, you know, that's, I think when people imagine indie, they imagine, you know, like that I'm like, I'm taking every package to the post office and uh, (laughs) it's not always the case. I, sometimes it is me. Sometimes I am bringing your merch to the post office, but, um, not always, obviously there, there are other people that work, that work here. It takes a, it takes a village. For sure. No. Yeah. With this this middle-aged man, it takes a village. to raise. Um, well, I want to talk to you, but I really want to talk to you about the new album because the story behind it seems, yeah, like it's, it was been a lot and, and it was definitely a hard time for you, but um, just real quick. Cause I saw on your Instagram that you got another platinum record for uh, a drop in the ocean and you have a double platinum record for, I think Sweden was the country. Like you came into your, the co-writer's house and you're like, we got the, like, I thought that was a yeah. rad video. Um, tell me about that song. Was that uh, something that took off fairly quickly or was that a song that ended up being more you know, like a slow burn or like what? That's, that one is kind of like the, um, the, you know, knock on wood, it is the gift that keeps on giving, um, okay. every, every year it seems like, how could this possibly keep growing? And it just does. It just keeps going and going <laughs> and going. And, uh, so I wrote that song with Zach Berkman, um, who used to be my roommate. Um, one of my best friends, he was, he's the officiant in my wedding. You know, he was like, he's, Oh, rad. <laughs> yeah. He's, 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 he's my minister. The reverend. <laughs> so, yeah. I did that for my the, friend's the, wedding too. And my brother-in-law's <laughs> it's the, funny. The, the right, the right reverend Zach Berkman. And so, yeah. um, uh, yeah. So Zach, Zach is, you know, like, you know, like my brother. Um, and so we wrote that song together a long time ago. And honestly, so, um, the process of getting an in, uh, an indie record certified is like insanely difficult. We had no idea. It's like, it's, it's hard to sell the records obviously. And, but like we had done that, you know, um, many years ago, but the, like the, the certification process is very involved. And like, if you're on a major, they have a direct pipeline. It's very easy. They have, you know, it's, it's like very, it's straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, but for us, it was quite a journey. So I, I always say this, like my wife, um, Blair, like I said, it runs everything. Blair had to do way more work to get that platinum record than I did. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, it was just like a ton, a ton of a giant to do. Um, but yeah, it's a trip. I mean, you know, I got one from my mom. Um, That's awesome. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a pretty, a pretty neat, pretty neat thing to, to have, I mean, it's surreal because, you know, the song is, 
I don't know. It's like, it's got, it's so big that it's like, um, it's, it's weird. It feels like outsized for like me as a human, you know, it's like people use it for things like in my head, it's about like a breakup. Um, but art is subjective. And so it's just about whatever you want it to be about. And so like, I met a couple the other day in Chicago that use it as their wedding song. And that's, I mean, that's like a beautiful part about art. It's like, it's subjective. So if you hear it and you were like, this reminds me of my grandma, well, then it's about your grandma. Like for you, it is irrelevant what your neighbor thinks the song is about. And it is also irrelevant what I think the song is about, even if I made it. Um, It's, there's like, I don't think the art, like art's not like, I hate to air quote, I know this is a podcast, but art is not about anything. Uh It's like, regardless of my intentions it has to do with how you perceive it um and so that's a pretty fascinating part about creating stuff but anyway yeah the song is it's crazy how big it is i don't i i struggle to understand it it is staggering every once in a while i have to do some crazy giant thing that involves the song and i'm always like how are we still doing this (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, the video is so cool. Just you going in with the two plaques and presenting yeah. them to your friend. I, yeah, I thought that was really rad. Yep. And they're just like up in his house, which <laughs> is like, you, you know, you go in there and they're just like next to, you know, like a picture of his mom and like yeah. you know, all of us in college and our band. And, you know, then there's just a giant, you know, giant platinum plaque on the wall. It's, um, it's funny you go, sorry, but your picture, you kind of make a joke about how your picture's on it, but his yeah. picture isn't on it. No, it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it is, I don't know, it's something else though. The whole thing is, is nuts. And um, so, yeah, we're, we're very lucky. It's been wild. And I think that also because for many artists that have a song that like, um, I don't know, becomes ubiquitous in that way, it's like easy to get to lose the artist in it. But I've found that like, for me, it's been like a gateway drug rather than like people hear that song and then they stop, they come in and they listen to lots of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, been an incredible blessing uh, for me. I have this enormous catalog. I've been making records for 20 years. So people come in and they, you know, they hear that or they hear one of the other very popular ones and, and then they stick around. And that's been uh, a, you know, a pretty, you know, a pretty significant part of how my music has spread these last, you know, whatever, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Like, because we were talking about earlier, like having the one hit or one song that you TikTok followers or whatever. It's like some people might go to that page, and if there's no back catalog, then it's like, oh, okay, well, there's this one yeah. song. But you have obviously a ton of other yeah. songs and big songs that, um, it, yeah, over the the years that you've been working at this. Um, I want to talk to you about this album. It's coming out, I think, you know, about a week or so on mm-hmm. the second Inside Voices. I know that there's a lot of, you know you guys went through a lot you and your wife around this time period and um you ended up going well you can you, you can tell me the story but you went to like uh, long island to write the record so i recorded the record on long island uh, oh, okay so, yes yeah, so what what happened is um a few years ago my wife had a miscarriage and then a few months after that she was pregnant again and it turned out to be an ectopic pregnancy and it was a especially dangerous uh like life-threatening situation she needed to have surgery and it was emergency surgery it was terrifying and after that we were not in a good place it was emotionally horrible you know the the pregnancy loss involves the the death of a dream you know the you know, the idea that these, you know, you're going to have these children walking around, uh, you know, that they don't, then they don't exist. And it's, it's horrible. And we were really struggling for a long time. And at some point we decided to go with Paul Hammer, who is my collaborative, my music partner. I work on all kinds of stuff with Paul and his wife, Faitha. We decided we would all go together to the beach. And while we were there, um, you know, we just wanted to go to try to do something normal um, and feel like like we were doing something regular. And so we went to the beach and while we were there, we started to feel a lot better. Just like a lot of the time that we were there and we'd laugh and we were like making dinner together, just doing regular stuff, sitting outside, having a glass of wine, telling stories. And, and so I said to Paul, I really wanted to give my wife 
that like as as for as long as I could. And I said, maybe when it's time to make a new record, we should go to the beach and we should see if we could just make it in a house. Uh, we had made house records before, but never just the two of us alone. So mm-hmm. I was like, well, for us to be able to do this, um, you know, probably the bulk of the recording budget we're going to need for a place to stay because it's you know obviously expensive to stay by the beach, and so we'll probably need to mostly make this just you and I. And uh, and so he was into it, and I pitched it to my wife, and uh, she was just concerned that I I hadn't written a song like in a very long time because we had been doing all this you know real stuff like actual life stuff, and I, I wasn't writing at all. So I, as kind of proof of concept, I sat down and I. I wrote a song called Body Language. Um, Paul, Paul's wife is from Brazil, and my wife, like I said, is from Georgia. And I don't know, we each grew up far away from, from our wives. I mean, I eventually moved to Georgia, but like, you know, our, our childhoods are, are pretty different, hers and mine. And certainly Paul and his wife's were, he's from upstate New York, like I said, she's from Brazil. And so just like watching them and seeing how lucky we were to have found these people who had these very, we had these very deep understandings with, you know, I think it's a miracle to find that, but especially with someone who like all the circumstances that had to align for us to find these particular women was like, you know, miracles. And there they were, you know, just swirling around us, uh, you know, as we were making dinner and telling stories and drinking wine and sharing all these things. And I, I just was, I was so grateful, you know, and so I wrote body language about that understanding. Um, and I played it for her. And she was like, oh, okay, you still know how to write songs. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> we didn't, you know, it's not, it's not turned off. It's not broken. Mm-hmm. And so, so we set out to start making plans to record the following summer uh, at the beach. And so we found a house on the North Fork of Long Island, um, which Long Island is shaped like a lobster claw, for those of you that don't know. And the bottom part is the South Fork, like where the Hamptons are. Mm-hmm. And the North Fork is the other part of the lobster claw. Um, so we're facing a bay, you know, that, that faces the Hamptons and the, it's called Peconic Bay. And, and we, so we went to this little town called Laurel uh, on the North Fork and we, we just moved into this house and I just didn't feel like I could in good conscience leave my family at this like wildly difficult time in our lives. You know, usually when we make records, it's like we wake up in the morning, we eat breakfast, we go to the studio and then we stay until we're like ready to fall asleep. And then we go home and go to sleep. And usually we, you know, creep into our houses long after everyone else is asleep. And, and we do that kind of every single day indefinitely until we finish. And I just, I'm, you know, my family wasn't in a place where I could do that. And so this allowed us, you know, we just took a bedroom in the house. We brought our, our gear in there and we worked in there. And, uh, you know, my daughter was, you know, she was, ta- you know, three years old at that point, she'd be taking her nap down the hall or, you know, outside flying a kite by the, by the water with Paul's wife. And, you know, my wife was working in the other room and, and Paul's wife is an artist. So, you know, she was doing like cool art s- stuff, like making these crazy, you know, m- multimedia kind of things, you know, using things that she was finding as they were out on their adventures. Like oh, that's it was really, it was really nice for us to just be there um, and participate in the lives of our families every day. And I mean, honestly, you know, I wrote this music in the wake of my wife nearly losing her life. And so it's this sort of love letter to her. And I don't, I don't think I could have done that in another way, like being able to like be in this house with the family and with one of my best friends making the music. It's just like, first of all, there were less people's input, you know, in the studio, a lot of times there's like somebody sitting in the back and they're pissed off because they're like, they're there to play keyboard and you're not putting keyboard on this song. You're like managing people. And so there was none of that. And so I was really able to like tend my own emotions were still so raw surrounding this that I really was able to just, you know, sit there with my friend and work through this stuff. And it was hard. You know, I, I don't, I don't know that I've ever, been involved in a process uh, where we were making a record that was more emotional. I mean, you know, I, I had planned a whole life with this, with this woman. She is my, my partner in everything. You know, she's my, 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 my great love, the mother of my child, my business partner, like literally every part of our lives are intertwined. And, uh, and then I nearly lost her and, you know, it was, uh, it was difficult for me to, explain how I felt 
And I find that, you know, for me, it's easier to write songs sometimes than it is to talk about my feelings. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's what the music was born from. And so uh, if nothing else, this whole process definitely taught me um, to pay very close attention uh, and uh, because our time uh, is short. And then in the midst of all this, my grandparents died. Uh, They died eight days apart, uh, which was... Yeah, it was, you know, it was heartbreaking, but it was also very, very beautiful. Um, My grandmother wasn't sick. She just went to bed one night uh, a a week after my grandfather died and she did not wake up. And um, they had been together for more than 60 years. So it was just a reminder that even if you get to, you know, they were together 61, 62 years, you know, from when they started dating. And even if you get 60 years together, eventually your time runs out. And it never feels like enough. I watched her that week devastated, you know, because the the organizing principle in her life was her relationship with that man. They they were partners, you know, in everything. And they were best friends. And so, I don't know, it was really, it was very difficult, but it did re- reinforce for me how valuable the thing is that I have. Like I have found this, person who I value so much, who in addition to being somebody that I love, I like really respect her. I admire her. I, I feel very lucky to have found someone like a, a person of substance to share my life with. Uh, and so I, I don't know, this whole process really reminded me of how, how blessed I am, uh, how much I value my family. And so the record is about that, but it's also now made me reevaluate everything in my life. You know, like this tour, I went on the road for a little while, then I came home and then I'm, I'm like out in little fits and starts because I need to be here. You know, like you you can't miss a month and just be gone and expect your family to just like be okay. (laughs) Like that's not right. You know, I think when I was, when I was starting, I used to go on the road sometimes, you know, 300 days a year. Um, there was a point even like up till, I don't know, not so long ago that like I've spent more days in Europe one, one year, I forget which year it was. I spent more days in Europe than I spent in America. And I spent more days in, this is when I lived in New York. I spent more days in London than I did in New York over the course of the first like 10 months of the year, because we just were ping ponging all like we'd go to Europe for however long, you know, whatever, like just a little less than three months. And then we leave, we go on tour in the States and then we go back to Europe. We go to Australia and we just like beep, 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 beep around the world. Um, and, you know, while it's important to me to share my music with everyone and I'm, I'm happy to be out there playing these shows, everything that I do now is much more targeted and focused because I need to be here. Like I'm somebody's dad and I'm somebody's husband. And I take all of that very seriously. And it's like, I love my art. I love to get to make this music and I love to get to share it with people. And I'm very appreciative of it. Uh, you know, the opportunities that I have to do that. But, you know, at the end of the day, like we, I think we lift up a lot of people in entertainment, especially men who are terrible fathers. Like people, people love to do that. They romanticize someone's love affair. And, and it's like the guy actually was a terrible husband. He, you know, was not a good father. And we, 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 you know, like that's, it's part of the legacy of a bunch of people. Nashville, where I live now, they love to do that, to lift up a person <laughs> who's like a bad father and they like forget all this stuff that he did and they like make him into some kind of a, you know, saint. And I just feel like that's, interesting. I die, I, that's where I live now. That's interesting that you, that you said that. If I were to die, and someone were to say he wasn't a good father, that would be the worst thing that someone could say. Like, cause your kids don't, they don't sign up to be born. Like you, you pick them, you pick mm-hmm. to have them, you pick to raise them. And so you have to take care of them. It's like the, the most important thing because they didn't ask to be here. It's not their fault. You know, like if you have a hard day or your job is difficult or whatever, uh, you owe it to your children to give them your absolute best. And I think that, you know, even more so than your spouse, like, I mean, I'm doing my best for my wife, of course, because um, she's my partner, but she picked me. But the kids, the kids don't pick you, you, you pick them. And so it feels like, um, 
Like that's my most important job. It's like being someone's father, being someone's husband, and then I'll do all the rest of this stuff too. But those are so far ahead of everything else that uh, I don't know. Like, I don't know that, like, I think that I would have been this serious about my relationship with my family, probably if none of this stuff had happened, but it, I know for certain now how I feel. And I, you know, it really reinforced um, how serious uh, my commitment is to my wife and to my child. And so, and so that's what inside voices is about. And it's some of it is, some of it sounds more fun than this sounds. Like, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> this is like sounds pretty heavy, but I mean, and a lot of it is just beautiful, beautiful music about, you know, the, the, this, you know, this relationship that's been, you know, uh, obviously a kind of the biggest thing that in, in my life. Mm-hmm. I love that you're that you said all that about you know being a dad first and, and a husband first. I mean, I have I have two kids, and you don't hear a lot of artists and a wife. And she helped she her and I made created this podcast together, and it's cool. It, it I'm hearing a lot of similarities in my story when you talk about you know working with your wife and stuff. And I just I find it awesome that you you that you speak that way because you don't hear a lot of artists come out and say what you just said about, you know, family and, uh, and your kids and your wife, it's, I, I find that rare with artists in general, maybe I'm yeah. generalizing, you know, like as far uh, as like just coming out and being like, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the hell I'm saying. Yeah, I guess, <laughs> you know, I think we're taught like when you're really, when you're somebody that people think is good at something in art, people give you an outsized amount of like adulation for that. It's like the guy who drove the bus on this tour was much better at driving the bus than I am at music, but nobody claps for him when he like, you know, backs the bus down a very narrow alley in an incredible way. Like there's probably like 40 guys in America driving those tour buses that can do the things that this guy knows how to do. Like there's a whole bunch of people that know how to do what I do, but in the arts, they give you like an outsized, outsized amount of praise for knowing how to do it and it's like i don't know like it's not that it's cool like i love i love art and it has given me everything that i have and being a musician is is so important to me but it's not that big of a deal like I, i just think that people like let it go to their heads that like people cheer for you at your job and like that's cool but somebody's doing brain surgery and like somebody else is like a structural engineer that can make sure that bridges don't fall down. It's like, you're singing fucking songs, man. Like take a deep breath. You know? like, <laughs> right, right. I, I, I mean, like, I, and I know, and I know a lot of people who are wildly talented that are not commercially successful. So it's like some of this stuff is a crapshoot. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, and one of the worst things that I think you can do as an artist is allow it to get in your head that you deserve something like you don't deserve as an artist. You can work very, very hard. You can be very, very good and nothing can happen commercial commercially. Like you don't deserve anything as an artist. You, you, you can make stuff that you believe in and put it out into the world and work very hard and nothing could happen commercially. And that's like, that's okay. It's, it's, it sucks. Obviously for me, it would be really bad. Cause I don't know how to do anything else. Like I said, but you know, <laughs> it's like nobody is owed a hit on the radio or another, you know, whatever, like, a, you know, your next song performing as well as your last song or anything like that. It's like, you know, for me, like I've been making records for 20 years, you know, like I said, we, we started the first record with the district was like Christmas break, 2003. So we, I was writing the first district album 20 years ago. And like, I've been doing this, you know, my whole adult life, it has been, you know, the main thing that I have done with my energy. And I've just watched so many people like be so entitled and like, it just, I just think it's bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) It's just you just you, you you write songs, man, or like whatever. You're an actor. It's like, and the people that you meet that have had long and storied careers, like, I don't like. I wrote a song with Michael Bolton, and he is the coolest, nicest, That's most chill. He's so <laughs> chill. Like you would never imagine. Like if you didn't know who he was, or he didn't open his mouth and be Michael Bolton, you would just be like, 
oh, like that's just a, like a chill, nice guy. He's nice to everyone he encounters. He's like easy to get along with. And, you know, you meet like, you meet like, you know, a kid who's got a, you know, whatever, like a 2 million followers on TikTok or something who's like, you know, like floats into the room, like, like the, like, you know, the, whatever, like that everybody should like, you know, yeah. freak out that they're there. And it's like, well, you know, that this, none of this means anything. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, like you're not, cause you're probably not going to be like Sam cook or Bob Dylan or something like influencing culture. Like, right. like, like I wrote a giant song. I didn't write change is going to come, you know, <laughs> like, you know like, like I didn't write fortunate son or something. And you know, I'm not like, you know, I'm not like standing behind, you know, like some, some leaders trying to change the world. It's like, you're making up songs about, about whatever your feelings or dancing or whatever you want to write music about. And like, I get that it's important to people. Music, like I said, like when I was a kid, certainly, and I felt like isolated and confused and all of that music made me feel much less alone and much more connected to others. And it was so important. And it still is so important to me for that. Um, and as an artist, like putting music out into the world has allowed me to reach like countless millions and millions and millions of people that I never would, you know, personally be able to interact with. And so that's great. I just think like, you know, perspective, um, it's, I don't know, there's, it's not, it's not more important than someone else's job. It doesn't make you so special that like, you should be a dick or you should be a bad father. Like you don't get a pass for that. It's not like, it's not cute that you're not taking care of your kids. You know, it's, it's um, not cool if you do that. So that's yeah. my opinion. That's how I feel about that. <laughs> I love that. Well, um, I appreciate your time, Ron. Thank you so much. Um, I, I have one, a couple more questions real quick. I just want to know, like, was it therapeutic to you or healing? I mean, it's, it sounds like having your family around you and writing that record and being there with, just a good friend of yours was it did you feel like you had some healing from that experience and then getting the album finished you know it's an interesting thing like um i always say this that we exist at the intersection of art and commerce and so it was really fascinating you know having i wrote like probably like over the course of the time as we were prepping to make this album i wrote probably 75 songs wow and a lot of songs and yeah, and that was really helpful for me from like August or or August going into September of one year to like the end of May the next year. Um, and that was really, really incredibly helpful for me. It allowed me to explore not just all of my feelings about this, but just any idea that was rattling around in my head, any melody that I was interested in. It allowed me to really immerse myself in my work while also exploring my feelings. So that was super helpful. And then trying to take all of these things and make them into recordings that like people might like, that was a really interesting intellectual challenge. Cause obviously like, you know, some of this is this like wildly therapeutic music about, you know, my like uh, abiding love for my wife who I nearly lost. And mm -hmm. so that was a really interesting challenge uh, you know, from a, from a creative standpoint. Uh, and I don't know if that helped me feel better <laughs> because it was like, I was like, okay, so I had to make this for myself. Now, how do I make it into something that people can listen to? Oh, for, um, yeah. And so that was a really interesting part of the journey, but I would say, yes, like us being in this house, being with our families and just doing like regular stuff, you know, sometimes we'd like take a break and we go and we like drink a cup of coffee and we be sitting in the, in the dining room. And we would literally see like Paul's wife and my daughter would float by like sharing an inner tube. They would like, you know, because you could see the bay. It was like oh, outside. Cool. So you could see they'd float into view uh, outside or, you know, like we could go outside and fly a kite with them or, you know, do just something normal. Like, you know, we could, we'd make all make dinner together and sit out on the deck and eat. And, and it was just very, it was very easy. Whereas like, you know, the work was hard, but the, the personal stuff was much easier. Whereas in the studio, it's like, you're trying to sneak off for five minutes to call your wife while you slam some Thai food and then run back inside and cut another guitar part because you're paying, you know, whatever, you know, hundreds Hourly or thousands paid, yeah. of dollars a day for the studio, plus all the people that are in there. And this was just like, you know, just us and our family. So it just, although the work was very hard because it was just the two of us, 
it's it felt uh different i would say it felt different than anything we've done before and so in the end the overall experience was the most positive recording experience i've ever had and it did help me to uh, that and a bunch of therapy helped me to emerge from all of these very difficult things that happened in my life yeah you said the first one that you wrote and and kind of showed your wife like see i can still write songs with body language and that made the records the first song on the record was it hard then i mean to write 75 songs was it hard to you know dwindle it down to the 10 and that's pretty amazing that that first one that you you did kind of as i mean obviously you wrote the song for a reason but it was like see i can still write that makes the album you know um I have uh, I have a tendency to do that. Like in the beginning stages of writing an album, I'll hit on a few good ones. You know, like in the first, you know, like the first, I don't know, 15 songs I write, maybe like four of them or five of them are good and they make the record. And then it's like a long stretch of garbage. <laughs> like, I think so. You know, because for me, it's like, Although, you know, there's craft involved in this. Like, I know how to write songs. I learned how to, it's like my trade. I've learned to write songs. Um, I would say that, like, some part of this is magic. And I do appreciate that it is. You know, it's like some part of this is, um, like, requires fairy dust or something. You know, it's like, because I could write a song every day. But, like, I don't write good songs all the time. Like, most of the stuff that I write is, like, it's like an idea that I'm trying to express or, you know, or or it's like an exercise. It's not like, you know, it's not a good song. Uh, And so it, I I was, while I wasn't so surprised that a handful of songs towards the beginning were good. um, I, uh, you know, yes, it is very difficult to get from there from one song to 10 songs. Cause in the end, even if you have nine finished, you still have to write one, like you have to pull something from the ether. Like you have to reach into the the clouds and, you know, come down with a song that works. And so every time that happens, it feels like a miracle to me. Um, like the real thing, when I wrote the real thing, you know, that pretty much automatically, I was like, Oh, this is like, this is one of them. That's like going to go into my, my catalog and be something I play for the rest of my life. Like I, I kind of knew it immediately. And, um, that doesn't happen every day. You know, it doesn't, that doesn't happen to me every year. Um, and so that, that, you know, there's a few on this record that were like that, where I was like, Oh wow. Like I've really channeled something powerful here. And, but I also, you know, this kind of goes back to the workshopping thing that I was talking about where it's like, I'm not so precious about it to be like, like some days I write stuff that's like, ah, all right, I tried that and it didn't work or it's not good and it's okay. And then tomorrow I try something else. So I'm not like, uh, I'm not one of those people who's like, Oh no, like this song isn't right. And I've got to workshop it forever. Like if I write something and it's like a clunker and I don't think I could workshop it into something of value, I just leave it. And then I go Mm -hmm. on to the next one. And so that's why my process is so long, I guess, is that like, I mean, I know some people can just sit down and write good songs every day, but that's not what I do here. (laughs) Well, you've wrote a lot of good songs, man. And I appreciate your time today, Ron. Thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I've what my last question is going to be about advice, even though you've been giving so many amazing nuggets throughout this entire conversation. But uh, if you have any for aspiring artists. If you are meant to be a musician, there's nothing that I could say to you that will dissuade you from doing it. And if you're not meant to be a musician, there's nothing that I can tell you to help you. Like, just do your best and do it as long as it feels good. And if it doesn't feel good, if you can think of anything else that you wouldn't mind doing, go do that. Uh, and hopefully uh, you, you know, you get to do this, you know, your whole life and it's, you know, rewarding, but it's okay if it isn't, it's okay if it isn't your full-time job, like you can make art because you love it and just do it with whatever time you want to give to it. Like there are no rules surrounding the creation of art and it doesn't make, your art better or worse if you have a day job or if you're going to school or whatever, if you just do it on the weekends or if you only play guitar twice a month, like art is supposed to make you feel good. And so if it makes you feel good, then it's good. I feel this way about food. I feel this way about, about wine. It's like, I don't know anything about food or wine, but I know what I like. And so if you, you know, if you find something that makes you feel good in the arts, 
just make it and don't make yourself crazy about it because you can't control commercial outcomes. And so, you know, don't worry about how many TikTok followers you get or how many streams or, you know, whatever, how much press you get, just like make, make art to make art and then, you know, do the best you can if you want to share it with people. And uh, that's it. 